Uh, this morning we uh, come to yet another application in our Theology of the Body series, and at, at this semester, this whole year, the cornerstone in our subject theories has been a discipline of the body, and uh, this week we're focusing particularly on the uh, practice of homosexual, homosexual practice and even same-sex attraction and how this has uh, been a major issue in the church and the wider society. Uh, this year I released a book called For the Body, which covers many of these themes, and one of the advantages uh, has been an opportunity to interact with uh, just people all over the country in various podcasts and interviews and church presentations on Zoom and otherwise, and I have uh, myself been on a journey, like we all are, on how to, in the midst of a cultural moment that we're obviously in, how to speak into that with uh, clarity and grace. And what I found, uh, and I'm on a journey myself in terms of understanding how to best talk about homosexual practice because it's not easy to talk about. And I think one of the things I've said to the, our student body repeatedly is that you don't want to create uh, a list in your head of all the things you can't preach on. Now, that happens to pastors, you know. There's things you just want to avoid because, uh, you know, it's very volatile. And issues have changed over the years, but I had those in my head when I was a pastor, and I had to make myself address issues I knew uh, were difficult. But I found with this issue, you have to be able to ring three bells simultaneously with great clarity. Now, if you are musically challenged like I am, ringing three bells at the same time is not easy. But you have to do this, and the three bells are the bell of clarity, the bell of courage, and the bell of compassion. The three bells basically relate to the clarity on what does the Scripture actually teach. We have to be clear on that. And this is the one I'll spend the most time on because this is the one that's been most neglected. I occasionally ask in the, in the United Methodist world, uh, am I like tired and exhausted of all the endless discussions on this issue? And I generally respond, actually, we never have had a conversation about it. We've never had a conversation about it. We've had a lot of shouting and a lot of posturing, but we, no one's ever actually opened the scriptures. Or what does the scripture say about this issue has not happened in my 50 years of working in this issue with, with the church. So the bell of clarity is important. The bell of courage our capacity to stand against uh, and be faithful in the midst of cultural winds that are blowing against us is really important. We'll look at some of the nuances of that one. And thirdly, the, the bell of compassion, where we respond to real pastoral needs in our midst, such as beautifully presented in our, in our uh, testimony today. First, let's begin with uh, clarity about the, about the biblical text. There are uh, two Old Testament texts in Leviticus and approximately eight in the New Testament, which are sometimes inappropriately referred to as clobber verses. Now, those verses are um, often put in this horrible characterization because these are the ones that supposedly, like, we trot out and say, wait a minute, homosexual practice is not permitted by Scripture. First of all, no Scripture verses should be regarded as clobber verses, but we don't actually believe uh, that this is a proof-texting thing, in other words. And I think that the whole semester, we've been talking about the grand Christian vision of the body. This is something that is, runs from Genesis to Revelation. It has absolutely nothing to do particularly with these verses. If you were to take all 10 of these verses out of the Bible, it would not change the Christian vision of the body and human sexuality at all. So we have a wonderful positive vision 
but it is still nevertheless important to know what these texts prohibit uh, in the case of conversations about this. This 18 to 20 is part of a wider discussion known as the Holiness Code, which happened in Leviticus 17 to 26. Now, in my uh, interaction with many people on this issue, I've found that, generally speaking, there is, I think, the universal agreement that the Leviticus texts clearly prohibit same-sex practice. That, that's really not really in dispute. I think what generally happens on these texts is that they seek to separate the church completely from the holiness code of the Old Testament and simply say, it doesn't apply to us anymore. Things like you hear, the most common thing you hear is, um, well, we don't sow our, you know, we sow our field with two kinds of seed, don't we? You know, and so why do we follow this particular part of the holiness code? So it really raises questions about there are things in the uh, holiness code that are cultural bound in terms of their application to particular Canaanite fertility practices. We, we totally get that. But there are many things that actually are addressed as normative for the people of God and are important for us to, to give um, attention to. And this is, this is how this text comes to us. So if you actually look at the text that's in, often plucked out, what you actually have is a series of six levels of admonitions regarding sexual activity. And it is a whole range of things, not just homosexual practice. The first is about having sex with close blood relatives, which wasn't understood at that time why that was so dangerous. We now know why it is. So there's a lot of lists about not having sex with your mother, your stepmother, your sisters, your niece, all of that. The second level has to do with having sex with your wife during her menstrual period. We now know a lot more about that that they didn't know then, and this is clarified. This is not a very safe practice. A third is, of course, the prohibition against adultery. And this is a repeat of the, uh, the Tenth Commandment, one of the Ten Commandments, the seventh of the Ten Commandments. The fourth level uh, talks about, uh, seems a little strange, sacrificing your child to Moloch, which seems a little bit odd. Again, this is a cultural dynamic where you have to know that the Moloch practice was actually partly a sexual fertility practice was connected to it, which is, by the way, today, say, today to idolatry, even today, from parts of the world where idolatry is connected to sexual practices. Then it fifthly goes to homosexual practice, which it condemns, and then it says it's detestable. And then the sixth is bestiality, which of course refers to sexual interactions with animals. It calls it a perversion. Now the fact that the, the, new, the, the Old Testament situates homosexual practice between sacrificing your children to Moloch and bestiality is pretty clear. This means it's a very serious offense in the Old Testament. Now, the other thing I think should be pointed out, that, as I think is largely lost in modern cultures, is the fact of how sexuality in general is understood in the Old Testament. Um, in the Old Testament, um, we, well, it's put in, our, in our world, we, our view of sexuality, our discussions about it are all built on the foundation of two principles which are really important in our culture, privacy and mutual consent. Those are really important things to our culture. Like what you do in private is kind of your business. Why would anybody want to interfere with that? And if two people are mutually consent, it's therefore non-exploitative and therefore it should be permitted. Very, very strong in our culture. Those were not values of the biblical revelation in the Old Testament. Because even though sex does take place in private, the oath regarded sexual activity as a public act because it was connected to the public good. So in other words, the idea that publicly defending, for example, marriage and fruitfulness and childbearing 
was considered very, very important to protect that as a public good, and therefore that was something that was important to the Old Testament. And also mutual consent. Um, the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament ethic, never, never um, says because something is mutually consented, it's therefore allowable. That was never, never a mentality of the Old Testament. There are many, many things that can be done that two parties consent with that are nevertheless wrong. So for the, a classic example would be um, fornication, where you have two young people who are madly in love, maybe engaged to be married, but they, they have sex with one another out of pure mutual consent. The culture sees absolutely nothing wrong with that. But the Word of God declares it fornication because it is a sign of chaos. And the church is never, like the Old Testament, ever called to go back to chaos. But the really important part of the Old Testament, which is important, which is often overlooked, is the Leviticus text 18 and then Leviticus 20, which is the, uh, they look at the, you know, the, uh, how they intera interact and respond to that uh, violation, is they actually, is the, the New Testament writers do not rely on primarily the Old Testament Hebrew version of the Bible, of the Old Testament. They rely upon the Septuagint, the Greek version. And why is that important? Because in this particular passage, in both 18 and 20, Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, they actually use a euphemism for sexual activity, which is very common all over the world, many languages, including our own. And they actually, in this case, use a euphemism which you yourself use and we all know, and that is the idea of someone going to bed with somebody. So the two words that are used there are the word arson for men and the word koita for bed. So what they basically say in Leviticus, they take the Old Testament, which is a little more earthy statement, and they put it into a little more polite form and say it's a tassel for men to go to bed with men. Now, the reason that's important is because when we get to the New Testament, uh, Paul does something a bit surprising when it comes to homosexual practice. There are many, many words to use, and we'll look at this in a moment, but Paul actually uh, invents or coins a brand new word. And this is the word arsenokoitai. And what Paul does is he takes, uh, which pretty clearly he takes the word arson and koita from the Old Testament in Leviticus and puts them together into one new word in Greek, arsenokoitai, which means men going to bed with men. So the point being is that Paul does in fact uh, it demonstrates that Paul is drawing upon the Leviticus text when he coins this word in the New Testament, and it is a word that has no attestation uh, until Paul used it that we know of. Now, we get into the New Testament. Uh, we have, of course, a number of seven different sin lists, which list various sinful prohibitions to guide the church in their ethical life, and they have a, a number of these. I won't list all these passages, but there's seven of them, and they employ a great range of words regarding sexual activity. Now, all of you will be well aware that in your lifetime, many, many new words have been introduced in the English language to describe specific sexual activities. That's something that you're familiar with. That's what it was like to be in the Greek world. Uh, in their world, their sexual activity was very, very rife, all kinds of activity, and they had words to describe all of those things. They had some words that we don't yet have, that we will have, but they had a lot of words for Greek for sexual activity. They didn't have just general words only. So they had words that were general words, and it's wrong to overclaim what those words are saying. There are examples in the Bible of words like porneia, 
akathrosia, komos, which don't necessarily refer to homosexual practice, and we shouldn't assume that those words are particularly related to that. They're words like our words. We have general words too. Words like sexual immorality is a general phrase. Uh, impure sexual acts, those are phrases that correspond to particular words in the New Testament, which refer to a whole range of sexual prohibitions, which would include uh, homosexuality, but include other things like adultery, fornication, etc. Malakos is even a more interesting word because malakos is an example on the other side of the, of the ledger where it's a very specific word. This word, for example, uh, refers to a soft or delicate man who would actively cross gender boundaries and play the part of a woman in a sexual act. They're sometimes called effeminate callboys, uh, someone who takes the passive role in sexual activity. In the ancient world, this was generally done, this again a broad, but this was generally done by Roman citizens would take the male role and a slave or someone that's uh, in a different power differential would take, maybe even an underage person would take the passive role, the, the Malakos role. This we call pederasty. Pederasty is a form of exploitative sex and clearly that does happen in the uh, New Testament and in, in the uh, ancient world. So the question is, uh, when Paul coins the word arsenokoitos, is he referring to that? Pederasty, of course, involves uh, inequality, impermanence, and humiliation. And sometimes you hear people say that mutual consent or long-standing commitments are just not found in the ancient world between same-sex uh, couples. That is simply not true. There are many examples of mutually consenting long-term relationships between equal adults, you might say, that are not part of inequality or impermanence or humiliation. Uh, Xenophon's novel, Ephesian Tale, tells the story of a, the passionate love of two men uh, who are of the same age and status. There are many other, Zemblikos, uh, Lucian of Samosora, write about the marriage, marriage of two women, for example. These are all things that are very much a part of the ancient world. They really did cover the full spectrum of sexual activity in the ancient world. Now the sheer uh, specificity of Greek words also means that when Paul, for example, is writing about uh, sexual activity, he does have options of what to draw from when he writes. So it's very important, for example, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, one of the sin list, Paul actually uses three separate words. He uses pornos, he uses malakos, and he uses arsenokoitos. So if these terms are all about exploitative sex, why would he use all three in the same passage? It's clear he's trying to identify different places along the spectrum of human sexual brokenness. The same thing happens in uh, 1 Timothy 1, 8 to 11. Paul uses both the general word for sexual morality, pornos, where we got the word pornography from, but he also uses the word arsenokoitos, which is, in this case, uh, homosexual practice. So this is something that happens. I think he actually the way he develops in Timothy is interesting because he actually ties it into the Leviticus command, again, against adultery. And it does demonstrate what a lot of OT scholars have said over the years, that many times, like the Ten Commandments, things stand as synecdoches. So you have, for example, when it says, thou shalt not commit adultery, you shouldn't ever go to it and say, oh, that must mean that, therefore, since adultery is mentioned, that therefore fornication is allowed. 
but rather adultery is the supreme example and it's it's like a, you only have 10 commandments after all right so 10 commandments these things are all key words with holding places for like a whole range of sin so in this case thou shalt not commit adultery stands for all sexual sins whatsoever adultery being the supreme example of uh, infidelity to the covenant so paul actually makes that connection in first timothy now we come to the, the Romans text, which are our main text uh, for today. Paul's argument in Romans 1 is really important for the overall argument we're trying to make. Uh, Paul uses the word exchange in each section of the passage, and he talks about three exchanges that are going on as signs of human rebellion against God as their creator. The first thing he says is that we've ex- exchanged the revelation of the true God into a uh, adherence or a love of false idols. Now again, Paul doesn't hear, which is a little surprising to us, because when we think about exchanging love of God with love of idols, we don't think about sexual activity particularly. But again, in the ancient world, idolatry was tied to sexual activity. So Paul says about idol worship, God gave them over to sinful desires in their hearts, to sexual impurity, degrading of their bodies one for another. Now that does not particularly identify homosexual practice per se. It's just simply broadly saying that sexual impurity is one of the things that happens out of idolatry and a sign of the rejection of the Creator. The second exchange is exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And here we, of course, are reminded of how Whenever we're in these situations, we can easily exchange God's revelation for our own ideas. It happens all the time, right, in the church and otherwise. And so it's reminding us the importance to exchange God's word for any other kind of word. Really great word for us. And then the last one is the one that is particularly relevant for our case, where he talks about the final exchange, verse 26 and 27, where he says, women exchange natural relations for unnatural ones. Verse 26, in the same way men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another, men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves due penalty for their error. Now, this particular um, passage is talking about, obviously, sexual impurity, particularly homosexual, lesbian, uh, gay practice. Now, sometimes people will say, well, this is only about exploitative pederasty. This is not about mutual consent, the same argument. But again, we have to ask ourselves exegetically whether that's possible in this text. There's four reasons why it's highly unlikely. If Paul wanted to identify specifically the condemnation of exploitative sex rather than mutual consent between two men or women, he had so many words to choose from. He did not. He did not identify that a particular word which he could have used. Secondly, I think as everyone should agree, if exploitative sex is involved, why would Paul condemn both parties? In, in our world, and even, even in our world, if we have an example, uh, tragically, where you have an older person, a, a, a post-prepubescent person who has sexual contact with a child, the child is the victim of the sexual encounter. You would never, never ethically condemn the child for that, right? And so in this case, Paul clearly condemns both parties, making it highly unlikely this is about a particular narrower form of exploitative sex. 
The third is that he does actually, this is a pretty a bit unusual because the New Testament mostly focuses on this word men bedding, men going to bed with men. This is a bit rare that Paul actually highlights lesbianism, which is something we don't hear a lot about. We mostly focus on the male practice, but here he actually specifically talks about women in sexual encounters with other women. Now, in the ancient world, uh, pederasty was very common among men, but almost unheard of among women. So in the ancient world, women interaction sexually one with another was mutual, was mutual non-exploitative in that sense. And so again, it makes it difficult to think that Paul is arguing for that in an exploitive way. Finally, Paul's phrase, contrary to nature, is never used in reference to excessive lust, but in terms of departing from God's creational design. So I really think that uh, Richard Hayes and many others are correct in pointing out that in this particular case, Paul chooses homosexuality as an outward, I'm quoting Richard Hayes, an outward invisible sign of an inward and spiritual activity, the rejection of the Creator's design. It's very, very important that Paul, that we remember God's design. That's, of course, lost in the wider culture, which is, doesn't believe in God. But we believe in design and therefore the fruitfulness which comes from that design, and Richard Hayes points that out. Let's move to the second point. We now have made a little, little move toward the clarity of text. What does the text teach? We have to go secondly to courage. Um, it's very, very challenging today uh, to you know, maintain the courage to stand up in the midst of a lot of cultural winds. And I've thought a lot about this, and, I, and I've interacted with a lot of people on this particular point, and I think that actually... I think the problem is not what I once thought it was. I thought it was the courage to stand, you know, for biblical convictions. Like, what is the problem here? Why can't pastors stand up for what the text teaches? What I found, actually, is the second part of this problem, which is that what has now come along with this uh, challenge in the culture, and even in the church, unfortunately, is if uh, you have a position regarding same-sex marriage, it's taken as a posture of anger and hatred. So what happens is there's a lot of false narratives that are often attached to our position that we don't actually believe. We believe in the warm embrace of every single person who could possibly stumble into the doors of your church, right? That's part of the universal call of the gospel. We embrace everyone. We believe in the universality of the, of the image of God. We believe in justice for those who are disenfranchised in a society for any reason. We believe in all those things, and we should fight for all those things as a church. And there are people that don't get that, and we have to make it really clear. But by and large, we all get those things, and yet it's very, very difficult when someone says, by virtue of holding this position, you're also holding a posture of hatred or disenfranchisement or you're against justice or you don't believe someone's in the image of God and all these things which are red herrings uh, that have distracted this. And I wanted to say, I'm looking out over the audience here, the congregation here, and I see you know, Bill Arnold and Steve Martin. I just want to give a moment just to say publicly how much this institution has been blessed by their courage I think they have shown at some real key moments amazing courage that has helped us as an institution. I think we ought to be thankful for voices like our faculty and the book that Bill wrote. I also want to give tribute to Jessica Legrone, 
uh, because in this case on behalf of her denomination, but in 2018, uh, she had a very difficult job to do. And she stood before the whole general conference and she presented the traditional view. And I, and I, I want to say that I was watching from afar, but I want to say, you know, Justin Legron demonstrated at a real critical time in her denomination a lot of courage and faced a lot of false narratives. And I want to just say it's an honor to be with people that demonstrate courage. Uh, the United Church of Canada, nothing against that church in particular, but they are like many churches, they lost the ability to hold a doctrinal standard because they just failed to discriminate between, we don't believe in discrimination, but churches must discriminate when it comes to all kinds of things in ordination vows, et cetera. The church is required to do that, make doctrinal decisions, et cetera. And they weren't able to do that. So Greta Vosper, you may have heard the story, she became an atheist. And they had a two-year discussion, a battle, whether to have her removed from the church. They finally said they could not because they had no way to discriminate an atheist from a believer in terms of pastoral giftedness and responsibilities. That's a real serious challenge that we have to remember. Finally, we have to also have the third bell, and all three of these bells are really important, and even though we spent more time on the other ones, this is really important, the bell of compassion. Um, every cultural, ethical, and theological challenge, in my experience, in the history of the church, always calls for the church to awaken to things we have neglected. One of the problems is we get lulled into, you know, kind of assuming things, and we need to be awakened. And I do believe that uh, people that are in the SSA group that have same-sex attractions have helped, been helped by God to help us to hear things that we have not been able to hear before. I think particularly at the Revoice conferences, I don't endorse all that's said in those conferences, but many of those conferences have brought out things which we need to hear, and there's two of them which I think we need to, to listen to. Um, and by the way, I, I need to say three things, but one of the things that they bring out up front is to say that, like with our testimony today, it's very, very difficult to carve out a space for someone who says some version of, I'm same-sex attracted but want to live faithfully to God and in celibacy. So what happens, one of the things they, they distinguish between what they call side A and side B. Side A refers to people who are practicing homosexuality and who believe it should be legitimized, taken off the sin list, and made into a sacrament of the church. There's a, quite a big group that's in that group. But there's another group, which is an important group to hear, side B, which are people who do openly say they have same-sex attractions, but they want to live faithfully, they want to live, uh, do what they can to live faithfully to Christ. So talking to that group and listening, there's two things I think we should hear. The first is the diminished appreciation for same-sex friendships. Now, one of the things that's happened in the culture is the culture has sexualized all relationships. So what happens is the culture has said in many, many ways, if your relationship is authentic, if you have a relationship with somebody that's authentic, it must culminate in a sexual act. Now, that has done a huge disservice to friendships, same-gender friendships. So I spent a whole chapter on this uh, problem in my book. There's no question there's a dramatic decline in same-sex friendships throughout the world because of this issue. People are afraid that people will think 
that it's a sexualized relationship, so they avoid friendships with the same sex. This is a huge loss. In fact, the phrase, I, I make the point in my book, the phrase, uh, blood is thicker than water, which we commonly use, which is meant to say, you know, the family ties are more important than any other ties, is actually an amalgamated change of the original phrase, which is the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. The original phrase, which now we can't even understand, so we, we change the phrase to the exact opposite. The original phrase was to, to defend the power of friendships, covenantal friendships. We have lost it in the church. Now the church, um, secondly, I think has to be really, really revivified in understanding the power and the importance of the celibate life. When I preached my seven sermons, the seven on the foundational stones, of course didn't mention this, these issues at all, but I did have a sermon dedicated to celibacy. That sermon received more response than any other sermon I preached on, the, on these topics. It revealed to me afresh that this is a huge unexplored territory where we have not given space for celibacy. Now what's happened in the church, I think, this is my theory about this, is the church, the evangelical church, is generally feeling like families are under attack. So what they do is they want to support families and children and all of that, so they create endless programs and staff positions to support and protect family life in America. Wait, I get it. We totally get it. But the problem is, inadvertently, many people who are, who are in the single-focused life, who have not, not moving toward marriage, they go into the church, they feel they have no place for them, there's no voice for them. So part of the real challenge for this is for the future leads of the church to carve out a wonderful, safe, and healthy place for those called to celibacy. After all, Augustine did write his famous treatise on the three goods of marriage, which is a wonderful and has defined the Christian discussion of marriage through the centuries, but he also wrote his famous treatise on holy virginity, where he also explored all of the, in fact, his own life was a, a vow of celibacy. So I think this is a, these are two things we can learn from and turn away with greater strength if we listen to these. So today we've touched on uh, three important issues, and I've tried to ring three bells, the bell of clarity, what does scripture teach? We've got to start with that the bell of courage. We really have to have the courage to stand firm, even in the face of false narratives against us. It's not easy. And thirdly, we do need to have great compassion for many in our culture that are struggling, and many are victims of cultural uh, social media dynamics that have created a lot of confusion in our wider culture. But I wanted to say to all, especially our students, I want to tell you that you are poised to go into a very exciting, remarkable time in the history of the church. You should not feel like, oh, I drew the short end of the straw. You know, I'm graduating in 2021. What? Like the worst? No. You are graduating at the greatest possible time. Because the, the group that I, the, the church I pastored and I grew up in and all of my life, I have mostly lived in a church in the very kind of hazy world of Christendom, very domesticated Christianity, a lot of civil religion, all of that. I was fighting those battles, you know, but it was very difficult because all the cultural haze. You don't have that. It's all evaporated. 
Granted, it, there's a lot of, you know, it's, it's a disasters out there, but the point is, you, <laughs> how about that for encouragement? Discouragement means lack of courage, right? Encouragement, courage means you lose your disappointment in that, and you realize the power of it is you have the power and the permission to go out and rediscover biblical apostolic Christianity. Amen? Amen? That is the great project of your generation. You will never be able to compromise this culture enough so they'll love you. They are not going to love you. We've, you finally got that. We spent 30 years trying to make the culture happy. And we have left you with all this ravages, and we must be humbly sorry for that because we could have shown a lot more courage along the way and we didn't do it. But now the baton has passed. There's some great, great clarification books coming out on all these things. But the most important thing is that you have the right and the privilege and the joy of going forth and embodying biblical, historic, apostolic Christianity. And I don't believe there's any generation better prepared to ring all three bells than your generation because you, you, you believe in all three. And I believe Asbarians are, have a tremendous role to play in this. And I want you to know that I am more excited today than ever about the future of our graduates in this great project that's before you. God bless you. Amen.